0: The seed is the Word of God, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. So dear friends, today I would like to look a little bit uh, with you at the whole concept of the Word of God. When we speak about the Word of God, more precisely, are uh, we actually as Catholics talking about? Perhaps we hear the Word of God... That is the gospel uh, read, or we read it ourselves, uh, on a regular basis, and maybe we have become maybe a little bit uh, negligent, or uh, we take it for granted. I think. Uh, so, for example, today's gospel about the our Lord gives a parable, and we we can read these parables, and some of us can fall asleep and be bored to death. But we don't realise how privileged we are to even hear uh, any one parable of our Lord. Why? Because our Lord is telling us how God thinks, sharing with us the mind of God. How profound, how deep, how amazing is this for us. Things that were hidden from us from the beginning of uh, creation are now being expounded to us uh, poor, insignificant, and ignorant creatures, God is telling us how he judges, how he ha- analyzes, how he works with us. And this reality is revelation, we call the word of God. And I think so many people, when you talk to them about the Bible, you get the impression, and particularly with Protestants, because of their profound ignorance you get the impression that they think the Bible somehow fell out of the sky one day and it dropped on us and uh, just came all of a sudden miraculously out of the sky and we have this thing called the Bible it just came all, all of a sudden by itself the profound ignorance is just beyond comprehension that's certainly what did not happen the Bible uh, didn't fall from the sky How do we even decide what books are in the Bible? How do we determine? How do we know for sure that this is the Word of God, and it's not just the Word of man? That's a very good point. The Bible, in its making, took over, say, uh, 1,500 years, from the book of uh, Genesis to the book of the Apocalypse, the last book of the Bible say, uh, over 1,500 years uh, in the making. In the time of our Lord, there was no such thing as what we would call the Bible. There wasn't a Bible as such. There was what our Lord refers to as the law and the prophets, which was made up the two main main parts of the the Old Testament, and uh, what our Lord refers to as the Psalms, the the writings not only of the Psalms that came under that heading but also uh, the books of uh, wisdom uh, the Pro- book of proverbs all those kind of insightful uh, books which were not uh, talking about the law like the first five books of, uh, of the Bible uh, known as uh, the Torah or the Pentateuch uh, or the prophets anything else was seen under the heading of the Psalms and our Lord At the time of our Lord, this uh, of the, say, uh, 350 references in the New Testament made by our Lord and the apostles uh, to the Old Testament, over 300 of them are taken from what we call the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Why is it called the the Septuagint version? Because uh, during the reign of the high priest uh, Elysia, uh, the king, the uh, second of Egypt, he uh, asked, asked the high priest, if a, uh, a work of the Jewish scriptures, could be compiled and translated, uh, into Greek. Because by the time of our Lord, and already before this book was being compiled, most of the world, had already been what we call the Hellenized, the Greek culture, uh, had uh, become uh, eventually the the common language of people all throughout the Mediterranean. And so uh, this already been starting to be the case. Uh, The uh, uh, Egyptian uh, pharaoh asked asked for a, a, a book of the Jews to be translated into Greek and to be placed in the famous library at Alexandria and because uh, when Elaziah responded he sent s- 72 scribes, 72 uh, learned men of the Jews, six from each tribe. These 72 making the number 72 and the shortened version of that is septua, which is refers to 70. Uh, this book became known as the Septuagint version of the, the Jewish uh, scriptures, a uh, Greek edition. Uh, no, by the time our Lord arrives on the scene, this was the most common read version of uh, the Bible. And this is the one uh, with all the books that we have uh, 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 in the Old Testament as Catholics, the version that we rely upon uh, because our Lord and the apostles accepted that version as being the word of God. being complete. Uh, The Protestants have uh, taken out several books of the Old Testament uh, in following with the the Jewish canon and uh, while the Protestants and the Jews later on tried to claim that was because um, in the first century AD a council met amongst the Jews and decided what books uh, belonged in the old testament and wanted to make that definitive the problem with that is it's actually not historically true there was no uh jewish uh, council that met this idea was invented by a, a jewish scholar in the 19th century uh just pulled it out of thin air there's no historical evidence for it but what's more is that uh any uh, what's more is that after the After the death and the resurrection of our Lord, the Jews lost any real authority over the people. That Old Testament church came to an end. So for us, we don't really care what the Jews think uh, belongs in the Bible or not because they lost the authority to determine that. That authority was handed over to uh, uh, the apostles and their legitimate successors, the New Testament uh, church. Uh, but what's more is also you got to understand the early the, the Jews at the time of our Lord even the, up until recently would not have had need to determine very clearly, very precisely a, a closed canon. What do I mean by a closed canon? To say that there is these books are the only books we accept. Why? Because you got to remember at the time of our Lord the Jews were still expecting. More prophets to come before the final prophet, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. So for a Jew who doesn't accept Jesus Christ, he has to keep the canon of scripture, if he's honest, open until the final prophet comes, Jesus Christ. So for them to admit there is a closed book or closed canon, they're actually saying without realizing it, that actually their religion came to an end. And that's, in fact, it did come to an end uh, with the coming of our Lord. Uh, but between us and the Protestants, there is the same books, if you want, in, in the New Testament. Uh, however, for us, it's very clear that uh, when it comes to the translations, obviously, uh, we differ. But from the early church, very, very uh, clearly on the very beginning, uh, already by the fourth century, uh, the councils had already very clearly decided uh, what books belong in the, both in the Old and the New Testament. Already the Council of Hippo in 393 and the Council of Carthage in 397, already very set in very precise terms under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, what books do and do not uh, belong in sacred scripture. And that's why St. Augustine would say to us, if it wasn't for the church, I would not believe the Bible. Why? Why? Because if it wasn't for the church, how do you know a book belongs in the Bible or it doesn't? Actually, you don't. And your your, your guess is as good as anyone else's. It's not based on whether it makes you feel good or it's odd or strange. In fact, that's why even in the early church, a lot of books that we have in the New Testament were disputed because they had some strange things in them like the book of the Apocalypse, letters of St. John, some epistles of St. Paul, Sounded odd, sounded hard, sounded uh, uh, unchristian. But the church said, no, actually, these books are uh, the inspired word of God. The church doesn't make the Bible inspired. God is the one who inspires the Bible. The church is the one that tells us they are inspired or they're not inspired. That's the point that we have to understand. But when we speak about the word of God, being the Bible, being the inspired word of God, what do we mean by that? And that's, I think, a very important question because we do need to understand what we mean when we say that the Bible is the inspired or inerrant word of God. There's no error in the Bible, that's absolute dogma of our faith. But what do we mean when we say that the Bible? Is uh, the inspired word of God. We mean principally that those who wrote the Bible were protected from error while writing what God impelled them to write. God used the human limitations of these people, but He impelled them to write and inspired them to write what He wanted them to write for us, for His people. And this is why Pope Leo the Thirteenth would say, "God stirred up and impelled the sacred writers to determine." Uh, to write all that God meant them to write, all that God wanted them to write. So every word in the Bible is absolutely the inspired word of God, not just parts of it, not just some of it, from beginning to end. Now, the question is, does that apply only to the original version of the Bible? Or does it apply also to the translations? Well, the church answers that it applies to the original version and to the translations insofar as they are faithful to the original text. Uh, And the Catholic Church uh, has set out very clear for us that the the most faithful text of sacred scripture is that of St. Jerome's Latin Vulgate text. So St. Jerome was commissioned by Pope Damasus in 382 to uh, translate all the existing uh, Greek and Hebrew versions of Scripture that were available to him at the time. A very learned man, both in biblical languages and understanding of Scripture. He made it his life work. And uh, uh, thankfully, he did this work because uh, when he was transcribing this work, there was available to him manuscripts of the Old Testament and even of the New Testament that are no longer available to us today. So he was very faithful and had access to texts by which he could compare and he could write down a faithful rendition. And this is why the church has officially declared her the official version of the Bible, which is, contains no error and can be quoted safely and, free and used freely, is the Latin Vulgate of St. Jerome, uh, and along with this, the Douay version that were translated for us, the Douay Reims version for us. Uh, Now, the church is not against translations, but she is against unauthorized translations. And there are, uh, obviously, the church has always told us to keep away from the heretical uh, translation of the Protestants, and I'm going to explain this in more detail why, but those translations are not. Scripture, their man's uh, version of Scripture, where they've muti- what they've mutilated, essentially, uh, to make it suit their doctrine. Because the Bible uh, doesn't tell you to be a Catholic, to be a Lutheran, to be a Mormon. It, it doesn't tell you that at all. It's your minister uh, that tells you to be a Lutheran or a Mormon or a Catholic. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak for itself. It's, it's a mute voice. It's a dead book. It relies on authority to speak for it, to defend it, to clarify it. An infallible authority. And there is only one infallible authority given to us through our Lord, and that is the church that he founded. In fact, for 1,600 years, no one disputed uh, amongst the Christian groups what books belonged in the Bible. It wasn't until the Protestant deformers came along and disputed those books following the Jewish canon. And the Jews themselves never agreed upon what books belonged in the Old Testament until about the Middle Ages. Because up until then, you read in their own writings, whether it's the the Mishnah or the Talmud, you see them disputing amongst themselves uh, and a number of them affirming the books that we hold as clearly belonging to sacred scripture and others are going against it. Uh, Now there is today uh, a common consensus they have 24 books in the uh, Old Testament, and the Protestants have uh, 39. It's the same number, uh, same uh, text essentially. Just the numbering is uh, is different. Uh, the the Protestants uh, essentially went with the the Catholic uh, numbering. And and what's interesting is when we look at the, even the numbering. When I mean numbering of Scripture, very important that you understand. So you have, let's say, Saint Matthew's Gospel. Uh, there's chapter one, chapter two, chapter. The Gospels were not written like that. That was later introduced by the Catholic Church in about somewhere in the Middle Ages uh, to make it easier to, to pinpoint certain verses in Scripture, where they're actually located. That was a man-made uh, aspect that we've inserted uh, to make it easier to read uh, the, the sacred Scripture. That's it. I'm talking about the numbering. But the words themselves, the text, uh, those are divinely inspired by God. Uh, and that, that is very important for us to understand. Is that Sometimes when we're referring to certain parts in the Old Testament, um, uh, even if it's the same book, the Protestants have numbered it differently So um, to suit whatever they want to suit. But it's very important uh, when you, to understand we don't all have the same numbering. But as far as the New Testament, both the Catholics and the Protestants have uh, the, same, the same books in them, even if they've mutilated and... Uh, Uh, destroyed them. It's important for us to understand as uh, in this regard, what is uh, the mind of uh, the church here? Here I want to give you some beautiful insight by, I think, one of the best books ever written on where we got the Bible from by Father Henry Graham. He explains that the the Council of Carthage in 397 confirming and approving the decrees of a previous council, the Council of Hippo, uh, declaring for all time to come what was the exact collection of sacred writings henceforth to be reckoned to the exclusion of all others as the inspired sacred uh, scriptures of the New Testament. That collection is precisely uh, what the church possesses as this, of this day in their Douay Bible, which most of you would already have. That decree of Carthage was never changed. It was sent to Rome for confirmation. Uh, A council, even though not a general council of the whole Catholic Church, may yet have its decrees made binding on all the whole church by the approval and the will of a Pope. A second uh, council of Carthage, over which St. Augustine presided in uh, 419, renewed the decrees of the former one and declared that its acts was to be noted, but, uh, notified uh, to Pope Boniface, Bishop of Rome, for the purpose of confirming it. From that date, all doubt ceased as to what was and was not uh, uh, scripture. What was spurious and genuine or doubtful amongst Christians' uh, writings was then known. Rome had spoken, a council of the church had settled it, Rome had fixed the canon of the New Testament. There are henceforth but two classes of books, inspired and not inspired. Within the covers of the New Testament, all is inspired. All without, known or unknown, is uninspired. Under the guidance of the Holy Ghost, the church declared this is genuine and this is false. This is apostolic. And this is not apostolic. She sifted, weighed, discussed, selected, rejected, and finally decided what was what. Here she rejected a writing that was once very popular and reckoned by many as inspired and was actually read as scripture at public services. There again, she accepted another that was very much disputed and viewed with suspicion and said, This is to go into the New Testament. She had the evidence before her. She had tradition to help her. And above all, she had the assistance of the Holy Ghost to enable her to come to a right conclusion on such monumentous a matter. And in fact, her conclusion was received by all Christendom until the 16th century, when, as we shall see, men arose rebelling against her decision And altered the very sacred volume. But at all events in this regard, uh, as regards the New Testament, the Reformers left the books as they were as they found them. And today that their Testament contains exactly the same books as ours. And what I wish to drive home is that they got these books from Rome. That without the Roman Catholic Church they would not have got them. And that the decrees of Carthage uh, and a Hippo, uh, when all Christianity was uh, Roman Catholic, reaffirmed by the Council of Florence under Pope Eugene IV and the Council of Trent, these decrees of the Roman Church and these only are the means and the channel and the authority which God had used to hand down to us his written word. Who can deny it? The church existed before the Bible. She made the Bible. She selected its books and she preserved it. She handed it down. Through her, we know what is the word of God and what uh, is the word of man. And hence, to try uh, at uh, this time of day, as many do, to overthrow the church by means of this very Bible and to put it above the church and to revile her for destroying it and corrupting it. What is this? but to strike the mother that read them, to curse the hand that fed them, to turn against the best friend and benefactor, and to repay with ingratitude and slander the very guide and protector who had le- led them to drink of the water of the Saviour's fountain. And that's the profound reality there. Let me just make a few comments here. Sometimes people will say, and I see this all the time, whether by Protestants or those outside the church, and sometimes by ignorant people within the church. They'll say, well, what about those other great books, the book of Barnabas or the book of Enoch, and and why are they not part of scripture? Uh, My answer is that I think people make the mistake that if a book or an epistle, let's say we found an epistle of St. Paul today somewhere, and it was really an epistle of St. Paul, Does not mean just because Saint Paul wrote it, it was inspired. This is a very important point. A book written by someone, some figure like uh, the great saintly uh, prophet Enoch, doesn't mean what he wrote was inspired. It might be historical, it might be true, it might be factual. It doesn't make it the inspired word of God. It's God who inspires the author, not the author who makes it inspired. That's very important. It's the church doesn't make the Bible inspired either. The church tells us which texts are inspired and which are not. Otherwise, we would never be certain uh, of, uh, of that reality. Uh, and this is a very important point for us when we, we look at why the church leaves out certain books, which sound almost very credible. They may be credible, they may be true, but it doesn't make them inspired. Uh, and we don't determine what's inspired by our own private uh, revelation. It's the church that not only uh, tells us what is inspired, but the church that helps us to understand how the text of scripture is to be understood. In the mind of the church, the Bible is only one part of tradition. It's the the written version of tradition. The church has seen two parts to tradition. Uh, and St. Paul makes reference to them in the New Testament. He says to the in the second Thessalonians, Hold fast to all that I have taught you, delivered unto you, either by word of mouth or by my letters. And to a larger extent, the Old Testament church was not uh, a, 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 a Bible uh, church, it was an oral church with a hierarchy, a high priest, the equivalent of our Pope. Uh, and then the, high, the, 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 the lower priests, and then the prophets. Uh, and they were handing on this tradition. And that's why it's very interesting in the New Testament, you see many things that are mentioned by the apostles uh, uh, in their letters that are nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament or nowhere mentioned very explicitly, like the, the, the seven choirs of angels. And they're not mentioned uh, in that ranking, in that order, anywhere in the Old Testament and St James who mentions to us in the New Testament that when uh, Moses died there was a great battle between St Michael and Lucifer over the the body of Moses. I'm thinking well that's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. How does he know this? And he writes it down under the inspiration of God. Well this was handed on to them by tradition Uh, and what's more is For anybody reading the Bible, whether you're a Catholic or a non-Catholic, there's basic things that you're gonna have a problem with. Firstly is, uh, when I read the Bible, I'm reading a translation. And there's an old saying about any translation from any language for anything. A translator is always a traitor. Why is he a traitor? Because you always lose something when you translate a text. Doesn't matter if it's just a poetry, a song, uh, anything. And you know, many things in an original language, if you translated them literally, it's not going to make sense. It doesn't matter what it is. Because they're, they're idioms or sayings that make sense to the people who hear them in that language. But you translate them literally, you're going to lose the meaning. It might make sense at all. So we obviously need uh, to know the history. We need to know the theology. That's why in the New Testament, you see St. Uh, Philip, he sees the... the uh, the, e- eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, and he says to him, uh, he's reading the book of Isaiah, and he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And the e- eunuch responds with the most best answer uh, ever written in this regard. He says, how can I understand what's written unless there's someone to explain it to me? And then St. Philip goes on to, uh, with the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, to expound to him what Isaiah is saying and who he's actually talking about. talking about our Lord. Obviously, you need somebody who knows the history, the archaeology, the theology, and it's, you know, there's an example in the New Testament where our Lord says, unless uh, it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. well. What's our Lord talking about? Well, at the time, there was a place in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And if you were on camel, you had to dismount, take all the things off the camel. And then you'd have to push the camel through and yourself come through and drag all the things. Well, unless you know the archaeology, the history, the theology, well, you're not going to understand what our Lord's talking about. You're going to miss the whole point. So you do need to know the history, the archaeology, the theology, a deeper understanding of the language. There's a lot that you're going to have to know for you to get the right... uh, uh, understanding, And the problem here is, for us, it's not such a big deal because we don't rely on our interpretation of Scripture to get to heaven. But the Protestants who claim to, well, if you don't know all that, how are you going to be saved? Just having the Bible alone is not enough. And the Protestants who all claim to follow the Bible, despite the fact that this led to over 40,000 different individual Protestant groups, they all don't agree on the Bible, both on, on secondary things and even on essential things. Is baptism necessary? Are the sacraments necessary? They don't agree. So the Bible alone obviously doesn't answer those things. It only creates for your more confusion without the church. Even, even if you want to look at, well, okay, we've got all these beautiful stories in the New Testament, all these beautiful things, letters. But well, how does a Christian worship God? Just taking it from the Bible, you'll never figure it out. It's very vague. But you have to go back to the writings of the church fathers, you go back to archaeology, history, you see the monuments. Ah, oh, these aspects of tradition render a clarity on sacred scripture. Uh, and again, all these point to the veracity of, of the church. That's why St. Peter says to us, there's no such thing as Christians for us, the concept of private interpretation. And he's already, later on, he speaks about the, those who look at the works of St. Paul St. Paul was a great mind. Uh, He was a a, a great uh, uh, Jewish scholar, taught by the greatest of the Jewish scholars of his time, Gamaliel. Uh, And so Peter says, be careful when you read the works of St. Paul, because many people interpret his works like they do the rest of the scriptures unto their own destruction. If you get it wrong, there's a serious consequence. It's called hell. Yeah. If you get the interpretation wrong, The consequence is eternal perdition, says St. Peter. St. Peter admits his own limitations. I'm not a great scholar. St. Paul's a great scholar. He's a great mind. Be careful when you try and read and understand him based on your own understanding. And the Catholic Church does give us a scope, if you want, a a perimeter for our own private understanding. And that perimeter is what we call the catechism or the Catholic teachings of the church. That's why many of the great minds in the early church, the church fathers... uh, popes, uh, theologians in the early church, the wise men, they have many different commentaries and interpretations of sacred scripture, but all within the parameters of the faith. And when our, our interpretation goes outside of that parameter, the one who is wrong is not the church, it's us. We look to the church to give us an insight on how to understand uh, these things. That's why the church gives us people who are called church doctors, church fathers, or to be as a father, as a doctor would, on a natural order, but in the spiritual order, to give us this deep insight uh, as to what is God saying. And remember, these church fathers, and this is a point I bring up to all Protestants, maybe, maybe I could be wrong, me, today, in my understanding of the Bible, but the problem is the Protestant church came around the 1600s. So for 1,600 years, we've got to ask ourselves, how did the Christians understand the gospel before that well we can just go back to their writings we can look at their works what buildings did they do what paintings did they do or not do these all things tell us how they understood the scripture now if they all for 1,600 years got it wrong what chance have you of getting it right absolutely zero you're even far more removed from our Lord's time, the apostle, the history, the theology, the archaeology, that you're going to need to understand the context in which this is actually written. Because you take anything out of its context, you can make it a pretext for whatever you want. So money, if I, I can rob my neighbour some money, let's say I steal $1,000 from my neighbour, that money can be used for whatever I want it to use it for. But is it justly being used, A bit rightly being No, it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. But I can go around and use it. But actually, I could be, in doing it, just extending my process of theft uh, and deviating from the very reality of what this is about. Well, this doesn't belong to me. Uh, Protestants, they stole the Bible uh, from the church. They got it from the church. And they misuse it to their own destruction uh, and their own division. Uh, And that's a sad reality because uh, God did not intend for us to be a divided church but rather united under one hierarchy living out faithfully uh, the Christian message. And you know today uh, the Bible has de facto, the Bible has come to stand for nothing, absolutely nothing in almost every Protestant church in the entire world because today the Protestant churches believe in all the most perverted ideas, you know LTGB, all this garbage and even the concept. You see with Jews today as well, the concept of a woman minister. What a blasphemous concept for anybody who knows how to read the Bible. The Old Testament, women had no liturgical role in any strict sense. Uh, and in the New Testament church, St. Paul's very clear. Women, your role in the church is to actually remain silent. You don't have an active role in the liturgical worship of the church. You aren't ministers of the church. Uh, and that today, both Jews and Protestants violate all these things. No moral standards, abortion, contraception, everything's fine with these people. And yet they all say they follow the Bible. I don't follow anything. They follow whatever they want. And that's the danger of uh, this uh, aspect of uh, private interpretation. It makes the Bible really uh, an enemy uh, of the very purpose it was given to us. This is why Hilaire Bilak, the great Catholic historian, points out there's three uh, main uh, aspects uh, that the uh, Protestants use the Bible against the church. He says, firstly, they appeal to the books against the church as if uh, scripture could be used against tradition. Uh, it's, uh, scripture is only one aspect of that tradition, and it's a tradition as a whole that gives us the insight to understand this book. He says, secondly, uh, they use it as a way of undermining the authority of the church and of the, the clergy. Uh, And thirdly, uh, they undermine it by uh, using it with their mutilated versions in order to uh, destroy the uh, uh, tactness, the greatness uh, of the Bible in order to to make it say things it never said. Uh, And in this aspect, uh, Thomas Ward's uh, really great work on the, the errors of the Protestant Bible, he says that uh, they mutilated a number of words to suit their agenda, like the word altar is changed into table. The word priest became elder, the church became congregation, and the word grace was changed into favour. That's why the, the Protestant versions all uh, refuse to say, hail full of grace, as the angel Gabriel said to me. They say, hail highly favoured one. Because for them, God's favor to us, God's grace to us is, as Luther held it, purely extrinsic, something external. So we are sinners um, and God just covers the sin. He doesn't cleanse it and get rid of the sin. He just puts a cover on it. So they use the extrinsic word favor. For the Catholic Church, God actually removes uh, uh, the original sin and he fills us with grace. His, his life in us. That's why we are faithful to the original word. St. Thomas More points out, the Protestants also replaced the word penance for repentance, confession to the word knowledge, and contrition to the word uh, trouble. He says they don't hesitate uh, to add words where they were not there, like Luther in the uh, Book of Romans. He adds uh, that we are justified by faith only. The word we're only it's not there in scripture at all. Uh, but he adds it. Doesn't doesn't bother him. doesn't scruple because I do as I please. So they make themselves their own infallible source. For us, the church has always said that there are three books that every Catholic should have in their home or attain to have in their lifetime. One, your, uh, your missal for the liturgy, for the mass, your prayer book, and thirdly, your Bible or family Bible. And these, all these three books, not only you have them lifelong, but in the mind of the church, you were to hand them on to future generations. That's why you, some of us have, have seen in our lifetime these very expensive missals or expensive uh, Bibles, uh, large Bibles handed on from one generation to the other. Some dating back five, 600 years, uh, one generation. They were very expensive. And some people saved their whole life long to get one of these Bibles. Uh, and you've got to remember, up until the 1600, hardly anyone had a Bible excepting the churches, because they were transcribed by the monks. Uh, we didn't have the printing press to make these things readily available. And the irony is, in a time when the Bible is so readily available in almost every single language uh, in the world, people are most ignorant of sacred scripture in all of history. Uh, the church has given us some of the best commentaries, ever written. The two greatest, which you can now read in English and fathers kindly put some of them at the back of the church. The two greatest complete commentaries are that by Bishop George Haydock and by uh, other Cornelius R. Uh, Cornelius R. Lappere was a, a Jesuit in the 16th century. Uh, in my opinion his complete commentary is the best of the best. There are other commentaries on sacred scripture by saints, popes, theologians. Uh, They've commented on several books or a number of individual books. They are also great, uh, particularly any work by uh, St. John Chrysostom. uh, And a lot of them are now for you available in English and online for free uh, being translated. St. Thomas Aquinas gives his uh, famous commentary on the four Gospels uh, known as the Countina Arena and and other separate books uh, uh, of the Bible. But the two greatest uh, complete commentaries are in English, today for you are the George Haddock and the Cornelius R. Lappede, which can be purchased. And we will try to make them readily available for you uh, at the best, easiest, cheapest price for you to, to have them. But they are, worth, they are worth reading. And I know that a lot of people will say, Father, it's, reading the Bible is boring. Reading the Bible is boring. And I understand that, particularly when they're talking about the Old Testament. But... The Old Testament is only boring if you don't see it in the light of the New Testament. It was, God inspired these things to be written and God kept them intact at a great price. God kept them intact at a great, and the church defended and protected them at its life. Remember the early church was persecuted. The pagans burnt our books, the Muslims burnt our books, uh, the, the heretics burnt our books. Saints were willing to lay down their life to protect these sacred books. Uh, they're important for us. St. Paul says, "All these things were written for our instruction and our hope. All these things were written for our instruction. All this lineage that he got, we got him, and got him. What's the point of all that? Well, to point to the Messiah, and to insist even the Messiah, the Son of God, would have sinners in his lineage." It's a hope for us poor sinners. Our Lord didn't distance himself from our sinners. So many perfect examples in the Old Testament where God, in detail, look at the minute, insignificant, most boring detail, tells them how he wants them to worship him. Tells them how he wants the vestments to be made. And you read, you know, why is that important? Well, you can, in understanding that, you can understand how blasphemous is the concept put out by the modern church today where we decide how we're going to worship God. No, you don't. God, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, determines how we worship him. We don't determine how we're going to believe or what we're going to think, and we set up a synod and we listen to the voice of the people. That's a blasphemous concept. Just look into the Old Testament. Every character who, got, who did that in the Old Testament, they were struck dead by God. Remember that that fellow who thought he was sincere. wanted to, to get a hold of the, the Ark of the Covenant. wanted to even prevent it from falling on the ground. The minute he touched it, he was struck dead by God. And today we have lay Eucharistic ministers. But blasphemous. The, the, the body of God being touched by people who are not authorised. Should not be touching it. The Old Testament gives us all these points in very clear detail. They are written for us, says St. Paul. That we may be instructed... And give us hope. Why? Because all the madness that we are seeing today, it's already happened. Just read the Old Testament. It's very clearly happened many times in human history. And the people of God, and even their leaders throughout the whole of the Old Testament, often erred, went off track, offended God, uh, became reprobate. Uh, we are seeing the same thing in the Old Testament church. It's an encouragement that's not new. And for all that, God does not cast off his people let not abandon us. He came in the fullness of time, says St. Paul, and he spoke in the, in the last days through his son. In the past, he spoke through the prophets, the prophets who often gave prophecies that they themselves didn't really understand. It's only when uh, uh, the future reality comes that we can look back now and say, oh, we now understand what Isaiah was getting at. It's very clear because we are looking back. The time, very vague. We are privileged. We are gifted. Uh, how much should it be our zeal to, to know it? That's why St. Jerome says uh, ignorance of uh, Scripture is ignorance of Christ. We must not uh, be ignorant uh, of Scripture. On the contrary, uh, we must be fully versed in this profound reality. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet says that it is like a hammer that scourges. It crushes sin. It gives us strength. St Paul speaking about the word of God says, it's like a two-edged sword that pisses right through us. It's such a powerful tool for us. There's nothing in our life that cannot give us an insight uh, on how to understand, how to judge, how to uh, evaluate a situation that is not contained in the word of God that is not given for our inspiration, uh, for us. And as I say, the greatest privilege of that revelation is that God tells us his mind to us, hidden from the foundation of the world. How how does God judge? Well, now we know. I laid it out in very clear terms. And yes, you can spend years meditating on the same verse in Scripture and come with even deeper understanding every time you read it. Heaven and Earth shall pass away, and my word shall not pass away, Father. So.